off the shelf. If you're a reader of regular DC titles, you will know already that you haven't seen your regular books since last year. DC paused all of its titles for January and February, so it could bring us the Future State event. Future State comes at the end and as the aftermath of Death Metal. The multiverse now explodes with possibility, and DC is showing us a vast realm of potential stories. As someone who adores the old Elseworld titles, there is a resonance with some of those. Not in the Batman as a vampire sense, but in the let's ponder some other possible stories. We see a new Batman in Luke Fox, even while Batman continues to battle the entity known as the Magistrate, and new Wonder Woman characters in Yara Floor and Nubia that coexist alongside Diana Troy. A whole new multiverse appears to be upon us for the intertestamental period after Death Metal and before Infinite Frontier. A few complaints have, of course, arisen that it just seems like a testing ground for new characters. Market research writ large. Others have mentioned that there's no real reason to get connected to these characters because they will mostly be gone after February. To be fair, however, many of these stories are interesting ideas, and one of the reasons that I enjoyed picking them up is precisely because I needed very little background. There was no continuity to deal with, no stack of back issues to plow through to understand how the families of stories fit together. Nope, none of that. Just some cool, mostly, stories that I can pick up, enjoy, and not worry about larger ramifications. One of the Future State titles that I picked up was precisely because I thought I needed very little knowledge of. While I've had volumes of 1 and 2 of Alan Moore's Swamp Thing on my shelf for a while now, I have not read it. So I picked up the Future State Swamp Thing with the creative team Ram V writing, Mike Perkins drawing, and June Chung with the colors. I had only the slimmest passing knowledge of the character, knowing that Swamp Thing showed up in various Justice League endeavors, like the recent Endless Winter event or Justice League Dark. This independence gave me the freedom to pick it up, and for the most part, I'm glad I did. The first thing to notice is that the style of this book is different. The other titles I read in the future state have an art style indicative of most comics currently. Distinct colors with a limited palette and what I can only describe as well-behaved shadows. Shadows cast neat lines. They don't bleed into everything, creating murkiness and chaotic shapes that obscure faces and structures like in this swamp thing. Much of the art here reminds me of the horror comics my great-grandmother used to unknowingly buy me. Or if she did know, she never let on. And it plays, this art plays well in this tale. The story takes place long in the future when humanity has been destroyed by the world. Nature itself responded to the violence that humanity foisted upon the earth and was ultimately wiped out. In the aftermath, Swamp Thing is left as ruler over all the earth. At least, ruler wherever the green, the planet's life force, has a foothold. Swamp Thing is recounting this history of humanity and its violence to his daughter, Kala. Humans, he tells her, were flawed creatures. So capable of amazing change, but preoccupied with violence. Since the end of humanity, Swamp Thing has been engaged in the creation of his own family. Throughout the two vol- these two issues, there are sides where Swamp Thing details the steps he took in creating this family. Harnessing the power of the green, manipulating the plant growth to produce offspring, earning the title Green Father. We see a large band of his family, but we become acquainted with only a few. The child Kala, the favored Heather, the cynic Indigo, an older Vruk. The family exists to aid their father in searching for any remaining human beings. A great mystery to the family since Swamp Thing never tells them why they are engaged in the search. But by the end of the first issue, humanity has been discovered far away in the north where the green has no power for lack of plants. 
and at least part of humanity, seeks aid from the legendary thing from the swamp, because there is still some element of humanity that seeks to ensure that the green is wiped out since nature was the downfall of humanity. Leading that endeavor is Jason Woodrue, the former worshiper of the green, Woodrue who went so far as to attempt to transform his body into a walking facsimile of Swamp Thing in hopes that he would be accepted and welcomed into the green itself. Their spurning of his efforts, along with their destruction of humanity, turns Woodrue into a spurned zealot who now, with the help of the corpse of the superhero Obsidian and his power of shadow, will blot the sun out completely. This action will guarantee that the green and all of its power will be destroyed, Humanity will ultimately win the contest. Frankly, this rationale, though, is the weakest part of this otherwise good story. Humanity ultimately wins, but at what cost? The Darkened Earth will be a hellscape for the remnant of humanity. How they plan to survive is unknown, although it does appear that the humanity engaged in this Obsidian Sun project has control over a former Star Labs facility, and were growing plants for food without the green knowing about it. It's entirely possible that they had some plan, but they never even mentioned it. In the end, it matters little whether Woodrue is successful or not. It matters only that the Swamp Thing and his tale about humans and their preoccupation for violence is still very much alive. Nurtured, This humanity is nurtured carefully through those cold, dark years in the North. Swamp Thing, his family, and the rebel humans respond to to the violence Woodrue and his minions are about to inflict on the Earth with their own violence. The battle scene's only a few pages, but it's left within my memory as a major part of the book. Swamp Thing's power made manifest as he and his band plow through the facility with ease. But in the end, Swamp Thing is forced to do two things. First, he must finish the story he would always start with Kala but never conclude. He's forced to be honest that it was he who the Green used to overcome humanity. His violence is the ruler of the earth punishing the wayward humans. Second, Swamp Thing had to make a terrible choice and undergo a great sacrifice. Was his effort in pursuing any remnant of humanity about wiping them out? In the end, we find no. He refused the calls of his family, his own creation, a people over whom he labored long and lovingly for their violence against them. At their anger, Swamp Thing chooses an unbearable sacrifice, one which he's incredibly familiar given the unfinished part of his tale. Ultimately, Swamp Thing refuses to end humanity because they are capable of being more than their flaws. They can transcend their bounds. Goodness is at the heart of humanity, and Swamp Thing refuses to ignore that. I am reminded of the words of God in the first creation story. Genesis 1, God looks out over all that has been created and claims that it is, quote, very good. And it cannot be ignored that being created in the image of God grants what some call the original blessing that original sin cannot nullify. It seems Swamp Thing knows this at the moment of his sacrifice because he too had a human existence, a human soul at his core. Following the green, he wiped out humanity, a family out of which he came. Now he repays the survivors for his terrible wrath with mercy, even at a great cost. There's a great deal to reflect upon in this story, but despite the wildly chaotic, shadowy ink, there is ultimately hope and goodness to be found. We are not flawed beyond redemption. God has created us with the capacity to do good, even if we have a tendency to forget about it from time to time.